Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Uh, so again, we've uh, been in this series, uh, the book of Esther, if you're a guest, and we're learning about this woman named Esther. And what's interesting about this book we found out is that God's name isn't mentioned one time. Like there's no Lord, there's no God, there's no Holy One. He's not mentioned anywhere. But what we're learning is that his fingerprints are everywhere. And so we're learning that although you can't maybe see God in your personal life, he's always working behind the scenes for you. And so we're picking up this week in chapters three and four. Uh, now, let's begin, I kind of want to give you a story to help you uh, get in the place and ready for this text. Um, in high school, I had a really good friend named Josh. He's actually the one that introduced me to the gospel and the Bible. And uh, he had just gotten his driver's license. And so Josh had a bit of a speeding problem, which maybe some of you in the church have something similar. And he's already gotten two tickets in this story in his first year of driving. It's like a terrible driver, right? Uh, Well, one night, Josh and me and some other friends, we wanted to go to our high school's uh, playoff basketball game. It's a really big deal. We had never made it that far. And we're running a little late. And so Josh offered to drive because he could get there more quickly. So we hop in the car with him and guys, we are flying. About two minutes into the trip, we are rightfully pulled over by a police officer doing like 70 in the 35. Huge problem, right? That's reckless driving for sure. And so Josh does get his third ticket in one year and he has to go to court for reckless driving. If you know North Carolina, we've got some folks that are from the area. The penalty in NC for that is a $1,000 fine and up to 30 days in jail. So understandably, Josh is shook and he knows he's in big trouble, especially even the added bonus of his insurance cost shooting through the roof. So what does Josh do? Later that week, he calls up a lawyer that he found with this cheesy slogan that was like, one call, that's all, was the slogan. And they said, hey man, send over X amount of money and we'll step in and we will mediate your case. So Josh sends the money and a mediator, see where I'm going here, was given to him. The mediating lawyer takes Josh's case, takes it into the courtroom. He pleads it on behalf of Josh to the judge. And through this mediation, the penalty was dealt with and Josh did not go to jail. Today, we're in Esther chapter three and four. And we see a similar, but yet far more dire situation than Josh is taking place. Guys, there's an evil plot going to happen. And it's set against the Jewish people. There's a legal decree in the land from the king that he's going to give to kill every single last Jew in the land. And the Jews were in need of a mediator, a defender, someone to plead their case and to rescue them before a judge-like king. And so as a recap, last week, what did we learn in chapters one and two? We learned that the book of Esther tells this story of a Jewish girl named Esther, And she becomes the queen of Persia through this ridiculous kingdom-wide, over-sexualized beauty pageant that was mandated for virgins. 
And if you're not here, you're like, what did you just say? Yes, it's as terrible as you just heard it out of my mouth. And we saw how God in this story was beginning to position Esther and her older cousin Mordecai to not only uncover a plot to rescue the king's assassination, but to rescue God's people from annihilation. More on that this week. But here's what we took away from this historical narrative that God gave us last week and we're gonna learn again this week. Listen, God never forgets his people. He never forgets you and what you're going through. And God is faithful to fulfill the promises he has made to you that are found in the Bible. And guys, we also learned that he's always behind the scenes, isn't he? He's orchestrating situations and circumstances and relationships. Yes, even terrible ones to providentially do something to bring about good for you and something for God's glory. And the story of Esther really challenges us in this point. It challenges us to really believe that when we can't trace God's hand at work in our lives and we're confused and we're hurt and we're like, why are you allowing this? When we can't trace his hand at work in our lives, we have to trust his heart is always towards us. And so as I shared last week, I hope that you're encouraged over this four-week series that when you're waiting between God's promises in scripture and its payoff, you will trust that God's invisible hand is always working, guys, in providential ways to bring you good and God's glory. So with that said, let's jump in. Esther chapter three, starting in verse one. As I read it, I'm gonna provide some commentary and we're just gonna work through these two chapters fairly quickly together. Verse one, it says, after these things, uh, the things being that beauty pageant and the assassination plan I just referenced, after these things, King Asuharis promoted Haman. Haman is a new character in our story and we'll learn about him. And the king advanced Haman and he set him above on his throne above all the officials who were with them. So we're learning that Haman is now promoted in the king's ranks to like second in command over all the Persian kingdom. This is a big deal for sure. He leads just second in command behind the king. So at this news, verse two, the king's servants who were, the king, who were at the king's gate, they would bow down to pay homage to Haman. And the king had so commanded this for all the people concerning Haman. So during those days, guys, I know it's different today, but paying homage in ancient Persia was more than just honoring some officials. It wasn't like shaking your head or nodding or or bowing or shaking their hands or giving preference. It was like elevating someone to a place of deity. And so the king has commanded folks to bow down and worshipful all to Haman as if he was God-like to be. But Mordecai, being a faithful Jew who only worshiped the true God and no one else did not bow down or pay homage to Haman. So, uh uh-oh, right there, right? We can feel a conflict begin to brew. The second in command and Mordecai who represents the Jewish people in this moment, there's tension going to build. Verse three, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, hey bro, why do you transgress the king's command? You know you're supposed to bow down. And when they spoke to Mordecai, they did it day after day after day after day because Mordecai wouldn't bow down. He would not listen to them. And so these guards, they went to Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand when Haman found out that he was a Jew. 
So again, after multiple days of trying to convince this Mordecai guy to bow down, these guards are like, I'm fed up with you. I'm done. I'm going to Haman and I'm going to try to use fear and submission to make Mordecai obey what we have to say. Verse five. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down, bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Now it's just interesting. We saw that line earlier, didn't we? The king last week was filled with fury when someone didn't listen to him. And now Haman is filled with fury. See a lot of insecurity with these two guys and a lot of power issues here. But what's interesting is verse six, it says, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Now it's really interesting because it's at this very point that we learn that Haman actually like hates Jewish people. Since verse six tells us that he wants to lay hands on uh, Mordecai in punishment, but it's not good enough. He doesn't want to just lay hands on Mordecai alone, but he wants to lay hands on the Jewish people as a whole. So verse 6b, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, not just Mordecai, in the entire kingdom of the king. Guys, this is extremely bad news. Haman thinks, well, hey, if Mordecai won't bow down to me and listen to me, and if he's a Jew, then maybe other Jews won't bow down either. So I have to kill him and I have to kill all of them. This is super jacked up, right? And you can maybe fear, feel some of the fear that the people will have soon. Well, unfortunately, before uh, this scene finds its resolution, this scene ends and it transitions to scene two. Verse seven, scene two. Now in the first month of the 12th year of the king, Paul, did you catch that? The 12th year, where do we pick up the story? In the third year. There's been a lot of time that's passed by now, right? Which means it's been 10 years, guys, since Esther has lived with her guardian and her older cousin, Mordecai, 10 years. It's been nine years since the king hosted that mega marathon party, right? Of 187 days where he rejects Queen Vashti. It's been six years since Esther was forced to partake in that kingdom-wide beauty pageant. And it's been five years since Esther has become the queen of Persia. Do you feel like you're waiting on God to answer your prayer Do you feel like Esther, that you've been a long season of waiting and struggle? Like you're waiting for a spouse, you're waiting for a kid, you're waiting for a job, you're waiting for health, you're waiting for the anxiety, the depression to subside. You're in a season of waiting and waiting and it's been years. God still sees you. God still plans to meet that need and care for you personally. Esther has been waiting 10 years. 10 years. And like her, church, if you're in a place of waiting, unfulfilled desires, unmet expectations, I want you to wait and I want you to trust and I want you to know that God is up to something. In that place of waiting, would you wait and trust and know that he's up to something? And for the Christian, our greatest place that we're waiting for is not a circumstance, a situation or a person to change, it's heaven. That's the place that all of our burdens will be lifted and undone. And so Esther must wait. And so there might be a season of waiting that you're in, and I want you to wait like her in faith. So verse seven, it's the first month. It's now the 12th year of the king's reign. Then the text tells us something interesting. It tells us it's the month of Nisan. 
Now, why is that interesting to point out? Not only that's the first month, but it's the month of Nisan. Listen, because Nisan is the first month of the Jewish calendar and it's where they would annually celebrate the Passover, the anniversary of their deliverance from their 400 years of captivity to the Egyptian people. Guys, it's like the author is trying to remind us, hey, listen, God was faithful in the past to rescue you and deliver you and he'll do it again. So if you were Jewish and you were reading this for the first time, you're like, oh, I know that month. I know Nisan. We celebrate the Passover, how God redeems and and delivers and didn't forget about us. And so when they read that, they're like, is this foreshadowing something? And it is. It's foreshadowing how God will be not just a past deliverer, but a present one. Verse 7b, so in this month, the king's servants, here's what they did, they cast lots. By rolling these dice called pur, I don't know if they named it pur like Persian, but they named it pur before Haman day after day. So during this ancient time, there was this uh, process where they would take um, uh, dice and they would try to sort of um, roll them out and, and hope that they would land on certain numbers and they would see that as guidance from some deity and they would do it. So it's kind of like a coin flip nowadays. Someone flips it heads and says, if it lands on heads, we'll do this option. If it lands on tails, we'll do that option. And so rather than doing it with coins, they did it with dice. And they were trying to seek guidance for a plan. So they rolled these dice called per day after day. And they were trying to figure out something. They were trying to figure out what their plan of attack would be and when would it be against the Jews. And it says this, that they cast it until they got to the 12th month which is the month of Adar. So now they have the time frame in which they feel that some deity has told them, this is when you were to attack the Jews. And it's about 11 months later. So verse eight, then Haman took this information. Great, this deity has spoken or these gods have spoken, he thinks. I'm gonna go to the king. And he said, there's a certain people, king, that are scattered abroad and they're dispersed among the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom. He's really just kind of blowing smoke here to him. He's referring to the Jewish people, of course, about those people. Continues, it says, their laws, he says, are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's laws so that it's not good, it's not to the king's profit that we should tolerate them. He's trying to play with the king here. He's trying to play on his insecurities Hey, they're not listening to you, king. They're not obeying you, king. What should we do to them? Verse nine. So he says, Haman says, if it pleases the king, let it be decreed that all the Jews are destroyed. And I'm gonna have some skin in the game, Haman says, and I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of your king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Guys, this is wild. Like this is genocide here. Like we don't have to look to the Holocaust. We can look further back and see this evilness. Guys, this is wild. Haman says, King, I'll pay you to let us kill the Jewish people. Make the decree and I'll drop 10,000 talents of silver into your bank account. Do you know how much money that is? 10,000 talents would be like 200,000 years of labor in their world. That's a lot of days work, 200,000 years of labor. Some scholars, check this out, suggest that the modern equivalent to 10,000 talents of silver is $3.5 billion today. Haman had a ton of money from what the king had given him, the job that he had to do. Again, they're over 
countries and nations, 127 provinces, they took all their money. And this guy's a ton of money. And so, of course, the selfish king's like, you're going to give me how much? Yeah, let's do it. Let's kill all the Jews. Verse 10, so the king took off his signet ring and he took it from his hand and he placed it with Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you and the Jewish people also. I'll give you both of them so that you can do to them what seems good to you. Man, this does not look good for the Jewish people. King's been paid off. King's given him some cash to get this done. And the king said, yep, let's do it with the Jewish people. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned just a few days later on the 13th day of the first month, a few days later, where an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors of all the provinces and all the lands and all the officials and all the people to every province in its own script to every person in its own language. So AK, if you're a Jew out there, he's saying, we're coming for you. We're gonna get the news to you in your language, in your way, in your route, and we're coming to kill you. It was written in the name of the king and it was sealed with the king's signet ring. This ring was just this custom uh, marking. It, it had a design on there that only the king had and he would press it into the wax on all of these letters and that designated his authority and his authenticity that this decree should not only go out, but it should happen amongst all the lands. If you disobeyed that command, you should be killed. Man, verse 13 so the letters were sent out by couriers to all the king's providences, instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. Whether you were young, whether you were old, whether you were a woman, whether you were children, it would all happen in one day. That day that those little dice designated. The dice that God even happened to work with to elongate the day so that I wouldn't have enough plan for something to happen. God's even charge of evil. He oversees all that happens. So here's that one date, the date for the death. The scripture says the date, the 13th day of the 12th month, they're gonna do that and they're gonna plunder all the goods. Now guys, this is really, really serious because this edict was calling for a people-wide genocide, the killing of all Jews. Because keep in mind, I'm gonna show you this picture here. The king ruled over 127 provinces, according to chapter one. And that land covered the land stretching all the way from India in green, all the way to Ethiopia in orange, which covers what? Jerusalem. It covers Jerusalem, where the majority of Jews were allowed to return to after the Babylonian exile. So this is a massively evil law and a massively scary time for Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people. And it's scary to think about the promise that God gave these people to send a savior through them one day who would die for sins and give eternal life in heaven to all who believe in this savior. So if this plan goes through, it's not just Esther who dies or Mordecai and the Jews, but for us today, Christians, we don't have a savior. If all the Jews are killed, there is no lineage in line for a Messiah to come through and all of us are left hopeless. All of us are left dead in sin. And it seems like everything and everyone and every circumstance is against God and his people. So chapter three sadly ends in verse 14. A copy of this document was issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all peoples to be ready for that day of killing. 
So they're even calling on the citizens of that area, like to be ready to go find a Jew and kill them. This is terrible. The curious went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued from Susa or in Susa, the citadel, the capital of Persia. And the king and Haman, like look at them. The king and Haman just sat down to have a drink as a way to celebrate their plan. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Why? Because they even felt a sense of injustice with this plan. Now it's here, guys, that we enter into chapter four and nothing in chapter three looked like God was in control, right? Nothing in chapter three looked like God knew what he was doing, that he cared, that he was watchful. It only actually looked like it was getting worse. But what did we say last week? We say the same thing this week. Sometimes there may be something that gets terrible or worse in your life. And that's not the place that God leaves you, but something might get worse in order for God to bring his best. And we talked about, isn't that what Good Friday is? The worst thing that happened to Jesus was his death, but that death was the best thing for us. It's our salvation. So friends, if you feel like you're going through this terrible season or something horrible, God's not abandoned you there. He might just take you at your worst place to bring his best and his glory for you. So that what that does is it allows us to hang on, allows us to hope and not give up when you feel like things are terrible in your life, your marriage, your mental health, your struggles with your past. When you feel like I hate my job, I hate what's going on. When will you give me something for my future, a spouse or a kid? Why have you left me here? You're in good company. But as the story unfolds, when things are out of control in your life, they might be just what more so in control in God's hand. If you think your life is chaotic, it's very much in control and wait to see what God will do with it. So as we enter into chapter four, we're gonna start to see finally now, God begin to work some things behind the scenes in a powerful way, he begins to pull the strings of opportunity and relationships and circumstance to accomplish his plans. Chapter four, verse one. When Mordecai learned, because he read all these decrees, it was sent out in Susa. When, de- when Mordecai learned all that had been done by way of this death decree to the Jews, what did he do? He tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes. And what's that? It's just an Old Testament sign of deep mourning in sadness, it's uh, not to be light of it, but like for us in the, on, on, on uh, like movies or whatnot, the sign of sadness is when someone just puts on a robe, they sit on the couch, binge watch TV, and they eat what? Ice cream. That's like our, it's like the similar thing. You put on a robe and you eat ice cream, but theirs is way much worse. So you tear your clothes, you put on ash cloth, and you're mourning, and rightfully so. Mordecai then went into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He's broken. Like some of us were broken, but we don't let anybody see it. Mordecai is so broken that he just can't control himself. No matter where he's walking in the city, he is crying out with a loud and bitter cry, totally understandable and absolutely heart-wrenching. He thinks he, his family line, the daughter-ish person, Esther, that he's supposed to be taken care of, and the promise of God coming through Christ is gonna be ruined. He's broken. Verse two, So he went up to the entrance of the king's gate because he was going to try to handle this in his own strength, but no one was allowed to enter into the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Just side note, side note, this is really interesting here. What if Mordecai went in? What if he actually got in 
and he went before the king. He said, king, you can't do this anymore. Uh, Esther, we're, we're Jews. And he could ruin the whole entire plan. Do you know that sometimes God telling you no is the best way of him saying yes to his plan for you? Do you see that quick little note in there? Mordecai was going for the king, going for him. You can't do this, king. And he was stopped. God's no for you may be very much his yes for you. So what has he said no to? Do you distrust him because he said no? Maybe his no is your yes. The way he cares for you. He's blocking you from harm. So maybe yes, we don't have that boyfriend anymore, that girlfriend anymore. We're not at that job anymore. We're not in those circumstances with those people anymore. And we were broken and understandably so, but that no was the path for his best yes for you. Just thought that was a, it's like an extra freebie, not in my notes, just wanted you to have that piece. So this is an all-time low for the Jewish people in this moment. They got out of 70-year-long period of exile under a godless and lawless empire. They just got out of it. Many of them had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple walls and the city walls in their beloved city of Jerusalem, only now to find out after they just got out of 70 years of exile that they have a date and a time appointed for their race-wide genocide. Guys, I can only imagine the panic and the fear and the heartache here. Like how incredibly evil and absolutely heartbreaking for these people. So verse four, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her about this death decree, the queen was deeply distressed. Again, understandably so because Esther's Jewish and these are her people and she knows the promise of this coming Messiah. So verse 4b, so she sends garments or these clothes to her older, older cousin Mordecai because he ripped his, right? He wrecked his clothes. She's got enough money. She wants to care for him so that he can take off his sackcloth that, that, so that um, he, would, he would be able to not be too distraught or too depressed. Because you might be in one of this same spot like Mordecai. He would not accept these clothes from Esther because he was too distraught and too depressed. And some of you have been here before. Some of you are headed that way. Some of you are even right here, right now. Some of you have been in this place. You're too distraught and too depressed because of the challenges that are around you. And I want to encourage you to find comfort here. This is a very much normal experience that the people of God have. Too distraught, too depressed at the circumstances around us. And I want to get to encourage you when things were, look the worst, God may be setting up his best. And isn't that the Christian life? Wasn't the cross a setup so that you and I could end up in glory? So if you're in that spot, God will not leave you here. He'll either fix that place earthly or heavenly. So friend, if you're in that spot, too distraught, too depressed, find comfort that you won't be there forever. You won't be there forever. You're not stuck there forever. He'll either fix it earthly or heavenly, but Christian, there is hope for you because of Christ. Amen? Verse five. Then Esther, she called one of the king's servants. His name was Hathak. Kind of like that name. Not gonna name my kid that. If we ever have one, another one, but Hathak is a cool name. And he's been appointed to attend to Esther. And he acts like this old school carrier pigeon. He's just gonna go back and forth, Esther, Mordecai, Esther, Mordecai, Esther, Mordecai, because they can't really hang out because they're outside of the kingdom. He's in sackcloth, she's in royalty. And he's just gonna go back and forth with these messages between the two. It's the first AOL instant messenger is Hathak, okay? So she ordered Hathak to go to Mordecai to learn more about this death decree and why it was so. Verse six, so Hathak 
got up out of the kingdom, went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gates. And Mordecai told him all that had happened. He's like, bro, I didn't bow down to Haman. He got super mad. Now he's gonna kill all my family and all the Jews everywhere. Imagine the guilt that Haman feels. Imagine the guilt. Just to pause for a moment. If you feel like you messed up your life, you messed up someone else's life, there is redemption and forgiveness for you. Could you imagine the guilt Haman feels? Because of my mistake, although he acted righteously, because of my mistake, I've, I've ruined my life. I've ruined everybody. You can't ruin your life. You're not in charge of your life if you're a Christian. Yes, there might be sins and brokenness that you caused, but there is a greater causer who considered all the mistakes we would make and work it in a plan for your good and his glory. That's a good God that you can trust. There is no mistake, no brokenness, no error, no sin that you did to ruin your life. That's why God is the redeemer, takes what's broken, takes our mistakes, and he makes it a part of the plan. Verse eight, then Mordecai also gave a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the Jewish instruction so that Hathak could take it with Esther because she's in the kingdom. She didn't get a copy of this. So Mordecai has a decree. He's like, hey, go show this to Esther and command her to beg. Command her to beg to the king for his favor and plead with him to not kill our people, to not destroy us. And so Hathak takes the decree, takes this message, and he goes back to Esther and tells Mordecai all that he had said. Verse 10, Then Esther hears this news, gets the update, reads the decree. Here's what Mordecai has said about you need to go to the king. And she spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go back to Mordecai and said, essentially, here's what Esther says. Are you kidding me, bro? There is not a chance I'm going before this king. Do you know how communication with the king works? Verse 11, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's providences know that if a man or a woman goes to the king inside the inner court without him calling you, there's only one law for you. It's to be put to death, except the one whom the king's hold out the golden scepter so that that person may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king at least for 30 days. She's like, no way. I'm not going before the king. When he's not called for me, I'll be killed. Plus, verse 11 tells us that her and the king aren't on the best of terms for some reason. They haven't spoken in 30 days. Some of you married couples are like, I get that. I've been like that with my spouse, right? For some reason, for 30 days, the king is not called for her. They're not on the best of terms. But do you realize that God doesn't have to have your terms right to work? He doesn't have your plan, your circumstance, your three-year, five-year thing to work in your life. He doesn't need your spreadsheets, your plans. He can do his will for your good and his glory. Amen? Verse 12. And Hathak, this poor guy's just getting some steps. His, his little, you know, meter walker, he's got, he's got, yeah, you get it. Verse 12. And Hathak and the other servants told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai gives this guy's really incredible faith-filled response to Esther. It's the first time we really see this introduction into one of them having some sort of faith. He says, listen, Esther, through Hathak, do not think to yourself that 
in the king's palace, you'll be able to escape any more than all the other Jews. Like, okay, you're a Jew too, and you'll die too, Esther. Don't think you're gonna get a freebie here. And then here's the faith-filled response, verse 14. For if you keep silent about this, Esther, I know you're scared. I know you're afraid. I know you're worried. But if you keep silent about this, listen, relief, deliverance, it'll rise for the Jews from another place. Man, can you imagine having that type of faith? Like, because all of us live like you're in charge of your own life. If I don't get this turned in in time, I'm not gonna get a good grade. If I can't get this good grade, I can't get this job. If I don't finish this thing, I can't get a promotion. We all are angsty, especially if you're gonna buy a house in Boston. You're like, I've got 12 hours from seeing it to buying it. And I've got to move now or I'm not gonna get it. We've all felt that pressure, right? That's exactly where there's that. But, but Mordecai has this big faith. Hey, Esther, if you're not gonna do it, I don't know how God's gonna do it. But he promised the Messiah to come through the Jewish line and relief and deliverance will rise from some other place if you don't do it. And then he says this, but you and your father's house, they're gonna perish. You're gonna miss out on the miracle of what God can do. And who knows, he says, this is the most famous verse in the book. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Man, I love Mordecai's faith here. He's like Esther. Listen, I can see how God's hands, Esther, has been working behind the scenes. Remember that beauty pageant? Remember the assassination plot against the king that I found out? And remember how God brought you in to be the, the queen over all of Persia when you were an orphan girl? If you choose to not step up, I trust that God is faithful to his promises, but I see God setting things up is what he's saying. So he says, listen, because I know a Messiah will come through this, if you keep silent at this time, I know, I believe, I trust that relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. So Hathak comes running back again, checks his meter steps. Wow, I've been doing this back and forth a lot. Then Esther takes some time to consider what Mordecai says. And then verse 15, then Esther told Hathak and the others to reply to Mordecai this way. She says, Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. And I want you to hold a fast on my behalf. She says, I want you to pray. I need all the help I'm gonna get, gather all the juice. And I don't want you to eat or drink. Don't be distracted night or day. I want to pray with you. I want my young women, they're gonna fast and do this with me. And then after three days, I'm going to the king. I know it's against the law, but if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him to do about gathering for people for prayer and fasting. Wow, wow, wow. What bravery on Esther's part. She, like Mordecai, she's like Mordecai. It's against the law for me to go without requesting me, but I'm gonna trust God's promises. I must do what's good and right, even if I die for it, but it's worth it. I'm willing to die for the deliverance and rescue of my people, she's saying. I'm willing to die for the deliverance and rescue of my people. Hmm, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? We're gonna pick up next week in chapters five and six, but this sermon is not yet over because we've got to pause for a moment. That sounds familiar, right? If I perish, I perish. Who does Esther sound like? when she says to her people, pray with me, right before she goes down and lays down her life for her people, it sounds like someone else that prayed with his disciples the night that he was taken for his crucifixion. 
Who does Esther sound like when she says, I will go before the king judge on your behalf? Like someone else did with my sin and my shame when he laid it to rest through his death and then brought my righteousness before God through faith in him. Who does Esther sound like when she says, if I perish, I perish? Like someone else did when he said, Father, if you're willing to take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will done, but be yours be done. What we see in this story of Esther is that she points us forward to Jesus. He is the ultimate mediator, the ultimate deliverer, the supreme rescuer. Like Esther, Jesus was called to represent a people who were destined to die, humanity. Like Esther, Jesus was sent to stand in the gap and mediate for his people before the king of the universe. Like Esther, Jesus did not eat or drink for three days in his burial so that we can eat and drink again in the kingdom to come. Like Esther, Jesus says, if I perish, I perish. Except for Esther, she didn't perish. But she points us forward to the one who did. My friends, this is the gospel. Esther is not the hero of the story. She points us to the hero of the story the one who stands in your gap because of your sins, your missteps, your failures. And Jesus takes on your sin like it was his own identity. He died where you should have died with the decree from God saying that we've fallen short and therefore there's a punishment of sin before this holy God. He takes on this identity like a robe of his own identity. He takes your sin on the cross, paid for what was not his, comes out of the grave without the robe and all he has is righteousness and forgiveness to give you. Esther points us to the gospel. And my friends, this is, this is what Jesus was talking about. If you remember that road to Emmaus, do you remember that? Jesus rose from the dead and he was walking along this road with some guys and he says, he starts telling them about all these Old Testament scriptures that pointed to him. I wonder if he did something similar with Esther. Remember Esther, that story you talked about that was kind of celebrated in the same month as the Passover? Remember how she said, if I perish, I perish. Hey, I was the one that perished. All of the stories point to him. And my friends, this is where Christians have great, great hope that not only did Jesus die for you, but he died so that you could live with him that no matter what you've done, no matter where you struggle, like today, yesterday, this week, you can walk with this God. Friends, I have one minute for each of these five points. I wanna give you the take-home points. It's like the little bonus feature at the end of a Marvel movie. Real quick. Let's see real quick, Nick. I can do it. I can do it. Number one, things I want you to take away from this. The main thing is that it all points to Jesus. You need to see that. The story, the hero is not Esther. Jesus is the main story. It's the first thing. But really the first thing in this is bring all your anxieties before God. First thing I want you to take away from this, real pragmatic, bring all your anxieties before God. Do you see that Esther did that? You don't see God's name, but she says, I'm gonna go and fast. I'm gonna take my anxieties, my worries before God. First, she didn't just run to the king to try to make it all happen. She ran to the ultimate king. She ran to her God and she fasted and she prayed. She put away the things that would give her strength. She didn't have Google, what, how do I say this? She didn't text about a bunch of friends. How should I wear this to the king? What should I say? No, nah, she went to God first. She prayed, she fasted, she was undistracted. She brought her anxieties before God. First Peter 5, 17 is the invitation for you, friends. If you struggle with anxiety, worry, fear about the future, 
It says, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Esther was worried about her future. Some of you are worried about your futures. Do the same thing. Cast your anxieties before him because he cares. Number two, listen, don't struggle alone. Don't struggle alone. Some of us in here are dealing with incredible hardships in your family, your past story, things that have happened to you in marriages with relationships. You've been hurt or you have caused hurt. Don't struggle alone. I want you to reach out for care and prayer. Do you remember that's what Esther did? She didn't just go and pray and fast alone. She brought these seven other women that were supposed to attend to her in the kingdom. She brought them along. That's an interesting evangelistic opportunity as well, that her pain was a platform to bring the gospel into, just a side note there. But then he said, she said, Mordecai, I want, I want you to gather all the Jews. Please, I need help. Guys, one of the holiest things you can do is reach out and say, I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time. I'm doubting my faith. I did this thing. I need help. Don't struggle alone. Reach out for care and prayer. Number three, the gospel motivates us to act with justice and mercy towards others. When Esther got word that her people were gonna be unjustly hurt, what did she do? She didn't say, I hope someone deals with that. Man, we gotta we got put a different king in place. Ah, politics, that'll solve it. Let's get another king in place. She didn't run politics. She also said, didn't, let's come up with the education plan. We need to figure out what do we need to do starting for elementary school so genocide doesn't happen anymore. She didn't go there. She takes the gospel's impact, how someone else stood in the gap and was a mediator and stood there for truth and justice and grace. And she says, I, I know that's what this all points to one day with the Messiah, but I need to step in there. My friends, that's why this church deeply cares about mercy and justice. So we wanna care for those who are not receiving justice, who are not cared for well, that have been mistreated. We should be a safe place and a strong place to carry out mercy and justice for others. Number four, use your platform to share the gospel. Use your platform. She was the queen. She had every excuse not to make her faith known, right? Arguably, who's gonna get fired the most from their jobs? Is it like the guy who shares their faith as a teacher? Maybe. As a government official? Maybe. But imagine being the queen and you're in a pagan land and you share your faith. She didn't care. She's like, this is why I was put here. I was put here for such a time as this to do this. Listen, for some of you, you're put at your jobs. You're put in your neighborhoods. You have your roommates. Guys, you hear that. You use the platform where God has you. That's why you're there. Guys, it would be the most terrible thing in the world for our church. If you had a 30-year career, you made all the money, you bought the house, you had the kids, whatever you, whatever you dream of. I don't know what your dream is, but maybe that's what it is. And you get it all and then you die. You just collected some stuff that's gonna rust and decay later. But what if you used your platform, your relationship, your job, your circumstance, your school, and you thought, how can I leverage this for the good of others and bring the story of the gospel into their life? How do I have conversations and pray for them and begin to introduce them to what God has done? That's why you're there. That's why you're there. That's why Esther was there. It wasn't for political reasons, education reasons. It was there because of the gospel and you are there for that as well. Use your platform to share the gospel. Last thing, the biggest thing, Jesus is your mediator. He is your rescuer and your deliverer. First Timothy 2 tells us, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, and that's Jesus. My friends, if you've been gathering with our church or online as a guest, we wanna invite you 
to trust in this mediator that can forgive your sins between you and God, but then give you a relationship between the two where he watches over and protects and guides and leads for your good and his glory. Would you trust in Jesus today as the one that laid down his life and died so that you could live in him? And Christian, for you, this is our last thing. He didn't just become your mediator for your sins or the rescue from your sins, deliver from sins, but everything you face, everything you walk through, everything you endure, every hardship, he wants you to go to him for prayer, for strength, for counsel, to mourn and to grieve, to be with him. Let him comfort you and guide you. And as he points you to heaven one day, where he's gonna wipe away every tear, every sorrow, every burden, he will heal everything and leave nothing undone. And so Christian in the room, would you trust that he's not just a mediator of your past, but he's gonna rescue that future, deliver you from what you're in, and there's a great hope for you to come. Let's pray together.